Hello, and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. This episode is brought to you by Staffing Referrals, the only automated referral management platform chosen by smart staffing firms. Tired of wasting money on traditional job boards? Sick of reminding recruiters about promoting your referral program? Wish you could eliminate admin work spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews? That's where Staffing Referrals comes in. Imagine transforming your entire talent pool into digital recruiters on behalf of your company. Think about how happy you'll make your team by eliminating wasted time spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews. There's a reason that Staffing Referrals is one of the fastest growing software platforms in our industry. It's because staffing executives want to scale faster by automating recruiting processes. It's because with Staffing Referrals, you can actually see an ROI. And it's because our world is now more digital than ever and your candidates expect you to keep up. Don't get passed by the competition. Stop missing referrals and start recruiting smarter. Get staffing referrals and improve your tech stack today. To claim one free month, visit www.staffingreferrals.com show. That's staffingreferrals.com show. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today at The Staffing Show. Super excited to be joined with our guest today, Jeff Wald, who is the author of The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Uh, with that, Jeff, why don't we go ahead and start off with a little introduction, and why don't you tell us what you're working on right now? Well, David, thank you for having me. Um, you know, by way of background, I've started a few technology companies. Uh, first one failed miserably and basically bankrupted me. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're going to start a few of them and have one of them be bankrupt, it's best to have the first one drive you to bankruptcy. Uh, the next one was a content sharing platform called Spinback, which eventually got sold to Salesforce. And then the most recent company and the most relevant is an enterprise software platform called WorkMarket which enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelance workforce. We raised about uh, $70 million in venture from Union Square Ventures, SoftBank, and a few others. And we sold the company in 2018 to ADP. I had the pleasure of serving on the senior leadership team of ADP for the two and a half years of my lockup there. And the day my lockup ended, which is not to say anything disparaging about ADP, because they're like the nicest people in the world. And it's one of the best companies in the world. Um, but uh, the day my lockup ended, I left. So for what I'm working on now, I guess I'm kind of retired right now, but uh, <laughs> retired in as much as I spend my days writing business plans and, and thinking about uh, the next startup. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's, uh, you have an uh, insanely impressive background. Uh, I mean, having an exit to Salesforce and ADP alone is something that uh, not many people can uh, have that type of track record, which is pretty incredible. Um, so with that, why don't we just kind of starting off, and this is uh, some of my own curiosity, but um, how or why did you start World Market? What was the what was the the kind of the inflection point that that got you there? So Work Market started. Or work Market. My apologies. Oh yeah. no worries, no worries. It is a very common error. <laughs> very common error. We quite frankly should have gotten that URL, World Market. Um, <laughs> work Market initially started in my mind when I was at business school. And I was thinking about a, um, a thesis for my MBA called The Nature of the Firm Revisited. And for those that know the paper, The Nature of the Firm, which is very widely known in the kind of world of work, this was Professor Ronald Coase, Nobel laureate. And he was theorizing in the 
mid 1930s about why it is we have these things called corporations. What, what's what's their point? What's the optimized structure of them? And there was this whole thread around companies would be ideally structured as very small fixed cost kernels with everything else being done. He didn't use this word, but everything else being being done in an on-demand capacity through temps and freelancers and parlance that we speak today. But the paper actually concluded the corporations are better off being these very large monolithic fixed cost uh, entities. And I remember thinking, that's really interesting in 1937, but what would the conclusion be today if we redid that analysis? So I started to do that and that proved well beyond me intellectually. So I ended up giving up and just getting drunk a lot at business school, which is what happens <laughs> That's what sometimes. we do. I, yeah. I did the same. <laughs> and so, you know, and then there was a paper written by McKinsey in somewhere in the 2006, 2007 timeframe that talked about the one trillion in on-demand spend at the time should grow to three to four trillion if companies had the right systems and processes to manage on-demand labor at scale and compliantly. And I thought, you know what? As an entrepreneur, we want to solve big problems. We want to solve, go after big markets. And anytime you get the T word in there, the trillion word, <laughs> that's pretty big. And so my co-founder and I uh, began a journey. He had started something in the labor space that was not actually dissimilar from work market before. And we took those concepts and, and ran with them. And that, that was work market. In June of 2010, we formally got started. That's amazing. That's that's incredible. And and um, and then the book that you, uh, the end of jobs. Um, uh, one of the quotes that I saw. This was on Amazon, uh, but it, it looks like the part of the summary. But I thought this was pretty interesting uh, and relevant for our audience. Was that the the power balance will again shift massively to companies as new technologies drive productivity increases in the service industry, much as the last three industrial revolutions transform manufacturing. And uh, this is something that grabs a hold of me in a pretty meaningful way because I really look at what's happening with the service industry, what's happening with staffing, see this massive adoption of technology happening, and really see people coming out and uh, you know just winning. The, you know, it's, it's changing the market drastically, mm-hmm. and I'm constantly talking with people about well, is it going to be a winner takes all in each staffing vertical? Is it you know how is the industry going to change from your perspective? When you look at what's going on in the staffing, you know, with uh, the rise of on-demand, it's such a great question, David. Look, it's it's a big question. It's it's an yeah. overarching question, and so I'll tell you this: as we were building Work Market, we had the opportunity to meet with the CEOs, the heads of Strat and Corp Dev, from I'm pretty sure every major global staffing firm. And if you're one of the staffing firms we didn't meet with, it's because I don't consider you a major global staffing firm. <laughs> so, actually, no, I, 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 joke, I joke, obviously, and we'd be, I'd be happy to meet with you. The point being is that they were all, they all came to us and they were like, are you our friend or are you our enemy? Yep. I was like, I'm 100% your friend. <laughs> if ever asked that question, by the way, the answer is always, I'm your friend. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we ended up... and. Working with most major staffing firms, I think almost all of the global, again, major global staffing firms are clients of Work Market, um, and they use us to service their clients because they get a lot of work from their clients that are as freelance work and is very short-term work, and it's not efficient for them to manage it through their normal processes. So they use Work Market, and a lot of them have multiple Work Market instances, so they have you know one instance for each client. So they're they're great clients for us. But it raises this question of what 
are staffing firms at their core. And, and you think about the six steps that I think about in the labor engagement, which is you need to find the right person, you need to verify they are who they say they are, and they can do what they say they can do. And staffing firms are always going to be very good at those two. You need to set the terms of engagement, you need to manage them through a process, you need to pay them, and then you need to rate them, or you need to capture data on how they did, because that's going to inform find as you start that process all over again. And so I think about those steps, I think about the compliance and the identifications that staffing firms give, and there isn't a lot that allows me to draw a conclusion that says, well, staffing firms can get, dis- can get disintermediated. You know, if LinkedIn adopted all the engagement and compliance and payment tools, could LinkedIn take out staffing firms? I think the answer to that question in the near term and medium term, in the long term, everything's off the table. But in the near and medium term, I think is no. Now, if I think about staffing firms' processes and how they go through the process of finding people and verifying them, engaging them and managing them, paying them and rating them, are there areas within that that allow for the removal of repetitive high-volume tasks from humans and to robots, and does it allow staffing firms to do those jobs more efficiently? Without question. And there are countless startups that are going after each one of these spaces. And so I think it's a very exciting time. And you know, you see staffing firms, some of them kind of go and try to break that mold of find, verify, engage, manage, pay rate by engaging with education and skills training and seeding the find. So going one step before the find to seed it. And obviously a deco I think is 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 the most well known in their acquisition of General Assembly. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And it's uh it's interesting is what I mean the the term that I'm hearing pop up more and more uh with you know staffing industry analysts, I think at their exact form they're talking about online staffing mm-hmm. as the new wave, which I think is the same, you know, on demand. It sounds like work market maybe falls into that category. Um and I it really does seem like everybody's kind of trying to chase that, uh, uh, you know, the ability for candidates to do as much as they want on their own and to remove any of the tasks that are not meaningful in terms of the recruiter engagement in mm-hmm. a meaningful way. Um, with that, I, I think there's a lot of staffing agencies and recruiters, uh, to be honest, that I hear are like, oh, well, our jobs are going to be uh, taken away. We're not going to have a place for us. And uh, having listened to a couple of your other your podcasts, I think we might be on the same page on this one. But uh, just curious to hear your thoughts on how you think the you know the future of work, the future of staffing firms, in terms of uh, will recruiters exist? What will, what's going to happen to staffing agencies? So near term, medium term, hard yes. Yeah, uh, recruiters will exist. The there'll be growth in the recruiting space. So however many number of recruiters there are in the United States now, uh, there will be more in ten years from now. Now look, will recruiters become more efficient at what they're doing? Yes. Will they get tools that help them to do their jobs more efficiently? Absolutely. And are there AI programs and a host of other things to help separate signal from noise and get to the right candidates quicker? And therefore, the recruiter to spend more time understanding from the client who's really the right candidate. It'll give the recruiter more time to spend time with the candidate to kind of walk them through and make sure that they are the right candidate for this job. And if so, how to make sure they get that job. And so those higher valued consumer interaction points will take up more of the component tasks of the recruiter's job as the recruiter spends less time sifting through resumes, just to to put a a, a label on it. But this all raises very important points, David, around people draw very simple conclusions. 
They say, oh, this tech exists, therefore this job goes. And history would tell us, data would tell us, how companies actually engage workers would tell us that that simple conclusion is almost always wrong. And so people do are doing the same in the staffing industry now. They're saying, oh, there are all these AI recruiting bots and this and that, and the recruiting job is going to go. No, that's just, that's just not how it works. And there are so many reasons for that around the technology itself and its capabilities, which people always overestimate in the near term. There are the regulatory constructs, there are the enabling infrastructures that have to be prepared. And importantly, as we've discussed briefly here a moment or two ago, is the client service interaction. If the client could have an AI bot do all of its recruiting, it just wouldn't want that. It wants, the client wants to talk to somebody, wants to really explain what they want. Because as you get into those nuances of what really makes the right candidate, we are nowhere I mean, nowhere even close for an AI bot to really be able to discern that based on resume inputs, video interview inputs, whatever the data input you want to put in an AI bot. Them really discerning who's the right candidate for the job is not even close. I, I uh, couldn't agree more. And I actually, it was at uh, Staffing Tech a few years ago. I had I was talking to somebody and they were, we were talking about AI. I think that was the, the you know, kind of core of the uh, event. And uh, kept talking about, well, what's going to happen? How's this going to impact staffing firms? And one of the guys next to me was like, you know, as much talk as there is about AI replacing recruiters, he's like, I can barely get my Alexa to turn my lights on and off when I want it to. I'm pretty sure we've got some time. <laughs> you got some time. You got so, some time. Yeah. Um, and with that, the other thing that you kind of commented on there is everybody kind of thinking, I think I heard you say this as, uh, in one of your other podcasts, but you know, that the, the uh, this time is different. Uh, as as something that dangerous words. also dangerous words I I've never business owners I've never talked to more and I think that's probably this goes uh, in all of the industries I've worked in that business owners are always our business is different mm-hmm. and whenever I hear that I'm I think it will be because you may not exist like you're not different <laughs> the problems are going to be solved the same you need to be willing to change and adapt and recognize. You're not special. These things are trends. They're mega trends. They happen yes. over and over again. Um, so maybe you just like uh, expand on that a little bit on uh, why why aren't things different this time, and and what makes you believe that? Well, first of all, I'll just build on your statement, which is whenever someone says about their startup, because I spend more of my time in the startup world, is uh, oh well, you know, we have a unique approach. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> There's nothing unique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. About yeah. It. unique is in it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. No, you're not unique. Get over yeah. yourself. So the this time it is different. It was just one of my favorite professors at business school would always say the five most dangerous words in business. This time it is different. And look, we all have heard the various different sayings that history tends to rhyme. And, and there's a reason that that saying has stayed around for so long and because it's so accurate. Look, consumers move slowly. Companies move even slower and societies move only when absolutely forced to. Yes. And so the idea that a new technology is going to come along and fundamentally realter the social contract between companies and workers, look, is it possible? I mean, I, I couldn't sit here as a, as a, as a person and say, and say, no, it's not possible. Anything's possible. It's just there's no historic example of it. So I just think it's, it's incumbent upon anybody that is looking at these statistics, looking at these trends. And if you start to see something that has never happened before, 
My favorite, of course, being the on-demand labor market is going to go from 25% of labor force to 50% of labor force. I was like, I'm sorry, has ever in the history of work some kind of shift happened like that? The answer is no. No, it hasn't. (laughs) Why do you think it's going to happen this time if it's never happened before? So I would always put the onus on somebody else. Give me the data. Give me your logical, reasonable, and defensible uh, hypothesis as to why it is going to be different because it's never different. It's never exactly the same either. But the idea that something is going to happen entirely different than it's ever happened before, there are too many forces at play here and the situations are too complex. And it goes back to our statement about simple conclusions. This stuff is not simple. It's incredibly complicated. And just because a new tech exists doesn't mean that every single company buys that tech and deploys it. Like A lot of things have to happen. And, and that's why history tends to move in this very specific and thoughtful rhythm. And to I think that that's suddenly going to change, is it possible? Of course, it's just you'd be making the first bet uh, on that. In, you, that'd be the first time it had happened. Yeah. And, and uh, with that, I'm just kind of going back a little bit in our conversation, but the, uh, uh, I always laugh when people are like, oh, well, we're not, nobody's going to have jobs. AI is going to replace everything. Uh, you know, Uber's going to be self-driving cars. Nobody's going to have, like, we're going to put all these people out of work. And I always uh, think back to the Industrial Revolution. And it's like, I think, I mean, I don't know the exact timeframes or economists have said this, but I know I've read it in multiple books uh, where it's, you know, I think that the estimates were that by like 2020, we were going to, or by 2000, people are going to be working 20 hour weeks because we weren't going to have enough work to do. Mm-hmm. And everybody always thinks, oh, these jobs go away. And the hard part, I think, is people don't understand. We can't tell what, what they're going to become. So we just assume they're gone. But they change, people change. Here are three almost uninterrupted trends over the last 200 years in the world of work. And somebody would need to really argue for me to understand that this trend was suddenly going to change. We have created ever more jobs almost every single year. There are more jobs on the planet than there were in the year before. Every single year for the last 200 years as we've created this thing called a job. Because the word job, as we think about it, is only 200 years old. Every single year, we have worked fewer hours. That is a trend. It is a slow and steady trend. The idea we're going to get down to a 20-hour work week is, to me, laughable anytime in the near future. But we have had a 10% reduction in our work week from over the last 50 years. So maybe another 10% over the next 50. Makes sense. And the standard of living has increased. Uninterrupted, almost. Perfectly, almost perfect lines up into the right. And so why those things would suddenly change This idea that a new technology that massively increases productivity, that's not not something new. Robots and AI are just the newest version of every other technology that has done automation. Automation has existed since the spinning jenny and the weaving loom 200 years ago. So automation is automation. This is new automation, and it will change jobs, and there will be jobs lost. No doubt about it. But uh, someone needs to explain to me a very, very thoughtful argument before I would move away from these almost uninterrupted trends for the last 200 years. Uh, could, could not agree more. Um, and with that, knowing that things, uh, I mean, I think we're on the same page in terms of it's, it will change, but it's not going to be maybe as drastic as everybody thinks. Uh, um, if you are a staffing executive running a staffing firm, what, what would you be doing? What, what would you be looking at, reading, consuming, changing your business strategy? Uh, you know, what are some thoughts around that? 
That is a great question. I will fully admit I've never thought about that because it's never entered my mind that I would run a staffing firm. <laughs> as much as I love all of the friends of mine that run staffing firms, um, I would say, look, staffing is a relatively low margin business. And there are a lot of technologies coming on stream using AI that don't allow you to get rid of workers necessarily. I mean, you could get rid of a worker or two with these new technologies, not all of your workers by any stretch of the imagination. But in most circumstances, it's just going to allow you to process more work and be more efficient. And so things that give you a point here and a point there, when I think about the huge revenues in the staffing industry, I'm a huge fan of being at the forefront of a lot of these technologies, trying different things around AI crawling bots, around AI bots that are sifting through, you know, resume parsing, for lack of a better term, around using uh, video interviewing and then using AI to parse the video interviews. So again, separating signal from noise so that your people aren't looking at a thousand resumes. They're looking at the 15 people that are really the best candidates and then really taking those in to, to the client. There are a lot of places that you can pick up a point of margin here or there. And so that's what I'd be thinking about because if I can do that, then I'm plowing that back in and I am continuing to innovate. And then I'm in this virtuous circle where I'm giving my client the best candidates, actually the best candidates. The clients love what I'm doing and therefore they're engaging me more and more. And, and that's where I'd want to be because if I'm not on that part of the chain, then I am the staffing firm that is going to say, well, I don't understand what happened. I just lost all these customers. You lost them to clients that are able to price better and are delivering better service because they're using technology to enable their processes. I uh, also couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, when just looking at the, the staffing industry uh, and actually the reports that we do on kind of the state of staffing industry, what we're continuing to see is that the uh, companies that consider themselves to be early adopters that are trying new tech and looking for ways to improve, but maybe not committing all in, but testing new things mm-hmm. out to see where they can get those extra few points, those ex- incremental gains. Um, I, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day, so they, implement an online staffing platform. And I think it was like a, in six months, they had a like 30 some percent increase in GP per recruiter. You know, it's like, Great. that's, you know, and so I think that with that, it's, uh, it's more about trying, you know, what, what can you do? What can you test out and kind of apply to see what, what is going to work uh, for you in the longer run? Uh, I think that is a great point, David, because look, one size doesn't fit all. You can't paint anything with a broad brush here. And I think, what people fail to understand about our industry, for the staffing industry, is that each different vertical, if I'm staffing for nurses and I am staffing for computer programmers, those are two entirely different flows. I, I can't take the same people and repurpose them from the nurse staffing to computer programming staffing. There are a lot of very industry-specific within our industry, functions and tech and processes. And so trying a bunch of things and seeing what works for your firm, I think, becomes very important. Yeah, and, and with that, as you're talking about it, the thing that I've I've also heard this from other uh, others in the industry, which I think is a great concept, is uh, recruiters almost transitioning right now. You know, recruiters that are running full desk are seeing. I mean, they're doing a lot of admin work, a lot of paperwork. They're kind of end to end, kind of stuck in a lot of things that maybe aren't as necessarily value add. But I've heard people talk about uh, recruiters almost becoming like uh, you know talent management, where they're mm-hmm. almost like a, a, a they're there to help you succeed in your career, help coach you on what you need to know. And that kind of 
the role shifting pretty drastically. Do you have any any thoughts around that? I believe, I believe, and I should know this, but I believe it was Bruce Morton uh, who wrote uh, one of the chapter, one of the essays in my book, uh, who talks very specifically about this, about the talent agent and the role of the talent agent. Uh, Bruce is the global head of strategy at Allegis Group, um, and just one of the most wonderful people uh, that I know in the space. And uh, I think it's a great, great concept. Um, it is one of my favorite pieces in chapter 10, which as I, I got 20 of the leading thinkers in the world of work to write their vision of what the world of work looks like in 2040. And I think Bruce hits on this exact point. I think it was him. Apologies that, to the writer who it was if it was not Bruce. <laughs> well, and my apologies. I've, uh, I want to get through your book. I haven't got there yet, but it's on my list. And uh, so far what I've read about it, I'm, I'm, I'm adding it to Audible for the next month. So I uh, didn't get Excellent. the chance to get through it before this. Um, with that, actually, I'm, I'm, why don't you tell me a little bit more about your book and kind of what the take of some of the, the key takeaways from it? Well, the whole point of the book was to bring a framework for thinking about the future of work. Because, David, I you know, had the opportunity and, and still do from time to time to speak at conferences, be on these panels, and you get to hear all of these wonderful people, these quote-unquote thought leaders and I will tell you, half of them I think are brilliant, and the other half I think should just need to shut up. <laughs> they, they literally are just talking to hear themselves talk, and I, I find that very frustrating. Because if you're making a prediction, you know there are people in the audience that are thinking about that prediction and helping, using it to help them plan for their themselves and for their families and maybe their companies or their communities. And I do think you have a responsibility to be very judicious with your words and to have your words be based in evidence. And in our world, and this is the framework I set up in the book, I would argue you need to look at the history of work, you need to look at the data in the world of work, and you need to think about how companies actually engage workers and deploy capital. And if you put on those lenses and then you look forward, I'm not saying that that gives you a crystal ball and that your predictions are completely accurate. Far from it. I'm simply saying that you have a logical, reasonable, defensible argument to be made. And so that is the point of the book, is to look at history, look at data, think about how companies actually engage workers, and to use that lens to make some near-term and some long-term predictions in the future of work. And when I did all that, I didn't have enough pages, and the publisher was like, this book's too short, we can't publish it. And I said, well, I don't like to repeat myself. Because they literally said, just write a bunch of examples and more stories. I was like, so you want me to just write the same thing over again? He's like, yeah. I'm like, no. no, 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 I'm not doing that. He said, well, we can't publish it yet. You need to have more. And so a friend of mine came up with the idea of chapter 10, which is I'd interviewed hundreds of people for this book. Again, the men and women shaping the future of work. And so I asked a lot of them, will you write four or five pages on what you think the world of work looks like in 2040. And that part of the book, I think, is amazing. And, you know, just I'm absolutely in love with chapter 10. And so, you know, these are people that are heads of some of the largest staffing firms in the world, or C-level people, uh, heads of the largest labor unions in the country, uh, heads of industry associations, largest investors in the space, and you know, legislators and regulators. And so their perspectives were amazing. 
just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, and some of the CHROs from some of the leading companies in the world. And so all of them uh, collectively each wrote their own vision of what the world of looks look like looks like in 2040 because I have my framework and I look through those lenses and I make my predictions, but I don't pretend that that's the only way to do it. They have their way of looking and uh, I certainly respect the heck out of each one of them. And I, while I don't agree with all the conclusions they made, I understand why they made them and we can debate and discuss them. I, I think that's amazing. It's also uh, interesting is that one, you've got your insight, your lens on it, um, you know, your research. The, I actually saw this, uh, I show my cards here, but I, I saw this on TikTok. <laughs> There's a, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a piece of content on there the other day talking about the future of content and saying, you know, to your point on like, there are no very few new ideas, if any, at this point. And that the future of content, according to a TikToker, don't remember who, is uh, curation, careful and intentional curation mm-hmm. uh, for your audience to make sure that they're getting the perspectives they need because they're, most of these ideas are out there. Most of, a lot of these things have been thought about. So it sounds like you've kind of got a combination of your own framework, your own thoughts, but also the, the, you know, it sounds like you've got some great uh, curated stories and comments in the book as well. That we do. That we do. And I certainly actually, I do actually agree with that TikToker, that uh, curation is very important. Look, I think Clubhouse is super interesting, but Clubhouse isn't curated, and most of the stuff on Clubhouse is just garbage. Yeah. Just garbage. And so I think it becomes very difficult. And the same can be said, by the way, of our industry, not to call candidates garbage, but making that distinction, separating signal from noise on the thousands of candidates that are interested in a position the people that are not appropriate for them are your garbage in that context. They may be perfectly appropriate for another role, but for that role, they are noise. And technology can empower recruiters to separate signal from noise and then really be the talent agent for the very few that are actually the right people for those jobs. Because if that particular job you're recruiting for isn't the right one, you're going to help them then maybe find a different job. And that is, to me... And to your point earlier, one of the very highly probable pathways for recruiting in the future. I also, and we are on the same page here today. So the, uh, when it comes to, um, do you have any thoughts around the separating signal from noise? That's something that I uh, think about quite a bit, talk to a lot of people about how do we, and I know there's, you know, HubSpot's got the predictive lead scoring. I know that a lot of people are kind of going down that path of how do we, you know, algor- use an algorithm to make sure we're getting the right candidates and the recruiters are spending their time efficiently. I think it's, but, I think yeah. it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous in our world. And obviously, I'm a proponent of it, but I think we need to recognize that it's dangerous because the ability to separate signal from noise when the job is very discreet and you understand exactly the skills that need to be done, and it is literally just if A, then B, if B, then C. That is easy to do, which is what we did at Work Market, right? The average job on Work Market, I think, was two hours, and they're very, very discreet jobs. They're very quick. There's a big difference between that and I'm hiring somebody to be a part of my team. Uh, I can use algorithms to separate signal from noise. Those algorithms still have bias, and there's a very important series of conversations that will be had for some time about how do we make sure that we remove that bias from the system Okay, I would say it's easier to do when it is very data-driven and skills-based, 
you possess a skill or you don't possess a skill. We can make arguments about, well, certain people don't get to possess the skills because of institutional bias. Well, okay, I'm going to leave that out for a second. I'm just talking about the bias and the data set I'm given. Um, but when you start moving away from that, look, there are ways to separate signal from noise, but the, I don't believe in the near term there are ways for AI to then just say, these are the three best candidates. And so I think it becomes very important in recruiters to make sure that the AI is being trained to give you one level above that final cut, because it still goes to a human to make that final cut. Again, the idea that an algorithm is going to be capable of having the judgment of intaking what the client really wants and then putting that in for a full-time role, I think we are nowhere near that. And any AI that is saying, oh, we can get you the exact right candidate, no, they can't. Take them that one level above where they give you 10 people, and then you take that final cut to deliver the right two or one to the client. But there are important conversations around its efficacy in getting full-time roles correct and the bias inherent in the algorithm itself and then obviously in the data itself. Yeah, and, and to that, I mean, I think the uh, something that's going to be more and more I mean, it's already a conversation, uh, but the uh, the people writing the algorithms uh, tend to be uh, developers and uh, tend to be white males uh, mm-hmm. writing algorithms with their own biases uh, uh, that they don't understand. And uh, it's, uh, I think there's instances where it's proving not to be the most uh, uh, ethical unless it's uh, you have to be very careful with I think how how it's implemented. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't, and I. I I don't think you're saying this, so I don't mean to imply that, but I don't think anybody is doing it intentionally. I don't think people agree. Like, oh, we got to yeah. keep X, Y, or Z populations yeah. out of this. It's just, you know, we code what Un- we know. Unconscious so, bias. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then within that, you know, there are, there are a host of very interesting conversations to be had, um, which I, I look forward to, to debating and discussing as, uh, as, as time marches on. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, with that, I know we're rounding out our time here. So I've got just a, a few fun questions uh, to kind of end it up uh, more on the personal Love level. Um, so, uh, and in terms of curation, this one is, uh, these are questions curated uh, closely from one of the people that I've, uh, when I started my business, became a little obsessed with early on was uh, Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now moved on to Sam Harris, but uh, still, <laughs> uh, but the uh, Tim Ferriss has, uh, one of the questions I had is, uh, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Vulnerability. Brene Brown. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's amazing what it does. Great, great quick answer to it. Uh, what is the, one of the best or most most worthwhile investments you've ever made? Could be an investment of money, time, energy, etc. I do not have a quick answer there. I could have said my buddy's company, Notel, because that I made an investment and it was 200x on paper, but then it went to zero because they declared bankruptcy last month. Oh, so it, it was one of my best decisions. Uh, but I, and I'd back that team again. They're, they're amazing. Um, but, you know, they were, uh, you know, got hit by COVID. It, it happens. Um, what is one of the best investments I've made? I think one of the best, I'm going to give you the, the softball answer here. And I'm going to mm-hmm. say, some of the team members at work market that raised their hands and said, I can do more. I want to learn more. And who were there early in the morning and stayed late until late at night. I invested in their careers. I invested in them personally, in some cases, you know, paid for school, paid for books for them out of my own pocket. And those investments, um, 
you know, when people say, what are you the most proud about when uh, you think about work market and what you guys achieved, I just start rattling off these people's names because watching them in their careers, that's been great. So hokey as an answer, but I'm going to mark that down as my answer. I love it. I love it. Uh, So what are bad recommendations that you hear in your profession (laughs) or area of expertise? What are some bad recommendations? Um, I am still a believer in fundamental analysis, and therefore, I don't understand Bitcoin. I mean, I understand the blockchain and the distributed ledger and and tokenization and things like that. I don't understand why Bitcoin is worth $1.2 trillion right now. And so this would fall actually in the category of bad advice and as much as I didn't listen, which was five years ago, I was dating a woman and she was like, just buy some ether. And it was like at a dollar. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I literally had a certain amount of money in a Coinbase account and I was about to click buy and I'm like, no, I can't do it. It just feels like I'm throwing money out the window. It's so stupid. And that dollar then went up to $1,900. So I would have had a 1,900x return on that. So, you know, that would be bad listening on my part, but I don't understand it. I still don't understand it. And that same woman, uh, by the way, still pings me being like, you're stupid. (laughs) I've been talking about uh, cryptos quite a bit lately. I've actually uh, uh, come to the conclusion that we we aren't, I don't know enough about it to be able to pick the winners, but I think there's going to be some major winners in it. So I've been, uh, my new strategy has been the diversified portfolio of anything that comes on Coinbase, put $50 into it. Let it ride. It's a gamble. It's a bad, I'm I'm okay with losing $50 on each one of these guys. And uh, so it's far, that's, that's, that's paying out all right. I, uh, I also had, I had a friend about seven years ago that was like, get into this, get into this. And I bought my first one at 400, first Bitcoin at 400. So I did all right. Excellent. But could have bought it at like 50. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that's great. Uh, what, what books or uh, what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? I mean, that's a softball yeah. for me, though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've got, you know, ADP bought thousands of copies of this book, so I've been giving her out left, right, and center. Which, um, for all of our listeners, you should pick it up. I, I'm grabbing I, it. I'm uh, going to make it mandatory for my team. So. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I actually gave the Brene Brown book out a lot when I first yep. read that. And I think that anybody reading her work or watching her YouTube channels, you will be better for it. Could uh, could not agree more there as well. She's been pretty powerful ever since seeing her TED talk. I got into her books as well. Um, last question: uh, What is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? I would say it's unusual. I'm going to go deep here for a second, David. So, all right, I get on my knees every night and pray. Which I am Jewish. That is not a part of Jewish theology, Jewish practice, um, but. I, while I am not overly religious, I am very spiritual and I certainly believe in a higher power and getting down on my knees every night and just saying thank you. I never ask for anything because I think that would be incredibly, incredibly inappropriate. I just am so fortunate to be able to live this life and that everybody in my family is safe and healthy. Um, and so, it is unusual, especially because you know I live in New York City amongst most atheists. <laughs> yeah. Certainly agnostics, mostly agnostic, many atheists. And so when they hear that I pray, um, it comes across as very strange to them. I mean, they respect it and they understand it, but it's not anything that they would do. And so it's an important practice for me. 
Uh, that's amazing. I think there's something to be said just for uh, uh, being grateful on a daily basis, regardless of what practice brings you to that. I think there's a lot to that. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, Look, everybody, about, we all live in this great country. We should just be thankful for that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, uh, last thing, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? Any any closing comments? Uh, you know, I will tell you that uh, I just put up content at jeffwall.com. That would be the closing thing is that uh, I bought jeffwall.com in 1998. And for about almost 20, 23 years, it sat there with no content on it. And I just finally uh, put up content. And so you can go there and check out uh, all the different things I've written and um, all the speeches I've given. And it's super exciting. I'm actually... I'm very excited to talk about it. I've only been able to talk about it for like two weeks. Awesome. Well, congrats to that. Uh, Thank you. Uh, the, the next, the next phase of your, your journey, wherever that may take you. So that is true. Uh, well, uh, Jeff, I really enjoyed having you on today. Uh, thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, uh, again, the book is called the end of jobs, the rise of on-demand workers and agile corporations. Uh, I will be picking up a copy uh, today on Audible and uh, be getting, getting some for my team as well. I think uh, that you've got some great insights and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next time. <laughs>